Please note that the contents of model mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on model mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about model mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. This episode of Model Mentality, we are speaking with Douglas Joseph, who is known to friends as Dougie. Dougie is an Australian model who was scouted at age 21 and whose career has spanned from Vogue Australia and Brooks Brothers to walking the runway for Ralph Lauren and to shooting a campaign with Hugo Boss. He is currently completing his business degree and launching a new skincare brand for men. We have brought Dougie onto our podcast to explore both a male perspective on modelling and mental health, as well as to explore in more detail his experience with anxiety. From his high school days through his 20s, Dougie has experienced how all-consuming his anxiety disorder can be and provides us with a great perspective on how he navigates this and his realisation that alcohol use makes him more vulnerable. We hope you enjoy this episode. So stoked to have you here today, man. This is going to be great. I'm very excited to get the male model perspective on all of this because I believe it's a lot of the same issues, just slightly presented differently. So first question, Dougie, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, uh, on the beach in Coogee. Nice. I love Coogee. Um, And how did you get scouted to model? Uh, I was actually on Bondi Beach buying, uh, well, I wasn't on the beach. I was in Bondi. I was buying shoes and this guy sort of ran across. He called called out to me and I, I turned around and he's running running towards me I didn't know what was going on anyway he came up and he's like hey you know I'm so and so I run this modeling agency uh I think you've got a great look I'd love for you to come in and get some shots done and I was like oh great do you have a business card he was like no I don't actually so I was a little bit uh a little bit skeptical but went home and uh did my research and and he was he was legit so it all kind of kind of started there and and then proceeded to the uh to the u.s yeah how old were you when that happened i was it was 21 okay so i wasn't super young yeah but for male models it typically happens older doesn't it or yeah. Is that, yeah yeah for sure there's certainly uh there's uh, i think we have a, a lot more longevity mm. you certainly see a lot of older older male models 
Yeah. So, yeah, I um, feel like I'm one of the older. <laughs> I'm, I'm like 28. Like, <laughs> this is insane. It's a testament to your career, Bridget. Oh, thank you. I've been well managed. Um, so what surprised you the most about the modelling world? I guess how unglamorous it could be. And look, don't get me wrong. I'm super lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I've had all these amazing experiences. But I learnt early on that it wasn't all sunshine and daisies. I had these like grand assumptions when my first trip going to Milan and because basically I think I'd been modeling in Australia for around six months to a year and then a, a scout from a, an Italian agency came over and you know met everyone from my agency liked my look invited me to go over to Milan for the I can't remember which year it was but to that fashion week and to me this was going to be like glamorous you know I was going to get flown over I was going to stay in these amazing hotels and I was going to get paid a truckload of money but no it's all like it's all out of your own pocket so you make your own way over there you get put up in these sort of dorms so I'm living in these bunk bed type situation and and I wasn't making much money in Milan that's for sure so you went to Milan and then how did you end up in New York so New York was always the like the end goal, I guess, you know, you'd know this, New York is, is the mecca of modelling. So I always aspired to go there, but getting the visa is, is a bit tricky. So we were always told, go to Milan, build your book, do some shows, and that gives you a better shot of getting signed with the US agency, getting the visa. So I probably did about three or four Europe trips before I was able to get signed in the US and, and get that visa. So I've been here for three years now. And what did you do prior to getting scouted? So you were 21. 21, yeah, I'd finished school. I had finished school and had wild dreams of being a professional motocross racer. So that's my uh, rebellious phase. No, I, I raced, I took an interest in motocross throughout school and then started racing in like year 11 and then continued a couple of years out of school and for a while like that's what I had my heart set on doing but unfortunately I was up against kids who had literally been riding bikes before they could walk so I was I started quite late I started when I was about 15 16 so I was behind the eight ball motocross is a motorbike yeah motorbike on the uh, so off-road on the man-made tracks. Oh, like the ones that jump and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it was wild. It was um, it was a lot of fun. It was very dangerous, but I was, uh, I was lucky. I never had any broken bones. I had a couple of mild concussions, <laughs> which, were, which were, were quite scary. Um, very, a very expensive sport as well. Yeah, it seems like it. that's not a cheap hobby no. to have on the side. <laughs> It didn't really make much sense. I lived, I lived next to the beach. I lived two minutes from the beach. I never took up surfing. Instead, I get in, got into motocross and the, the closest track was about an hour and a half away. So how did you find the move from Australia to New York, like the transition from the Aussie beach lifestyle to New York? It was intense, certainly. Um, I always said, gr growing up where I did, Coogee, it's it's one of the most aesthetically pleasing environments you know to be in it's so nice it's clean lush and there's so much greenery and there's no rubbish on the streets and it 
it's also quiet, you know, that ability to walk down a street and there'd be literally no one there, you know, juxtaposed with this craziness of New York where it's like dirty, loud, smelly, there's barely any greenery. Um, I, I certainly noticed that. It didn't, it didn't bother me because I think when you first come here, it's, you know, there's other things that make it so amazing and take your mind off all that stuff. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I, I, I did notice it, but it didn't, you know, I was excited to be here for sure. Yeah. Um, what do you miss the most about Australia? Probably I've always said the, the ability to walk down a, a quiet, quiet street. Yeah. It just, it doesn't exist here. No, you'd have to like leave the city. Yeah, you'd yeah, have to yeah. like drive to a street to walk down it. Yeah, and it's like, mm, yeah, it's really worth it. Um, so, how do you feel today about your identity as a model? I know there are a lot of like stereotypes that are projected onto models, and I imagine as a male model, you get the Zoolander references quite a bit. Yeah. Um, how do you feel today? How does that like influence the way you view modeling? Uh, I look. I'm quite indifferent. I I, I see it as a I think my view has changed on it. I used to be kind of, in a way, I don't know if embarrassed is the right word, but when people would ask me what I did, I'd, I'd kind of laugh and then be like, oh, I'm a male model. I kind of like down, downplay it a little bit. But now I'm, I find that, I don't know why I was like that. Maybe I, maybe I thought that, you know, perhaps people had this view of, of what they were like, of what male models were like. But now I find, I tell people, and I'm happy telling people that I'm a male model. And, and generally I find that they're really, most people are really interested in what it's like. So what do you love about boxing so much? Uh, I started boxing in Milan actually with a, a Kiwi guy who was previously a boxer. And then in the, instead of going down that, that boxing path, he, he happened to get scouted and and took the modeling path instead. So uh, his name was Zach, Kiwi guy. I met him in Milan. I'd actually met him in Australia on, a, on one of my first jobs there. He happened to be in Milan at the same time that I was there. And I didn't think I knew he was a boxer, but he told me to come meet him at Parco Sempione uh, one afternoon because he told me we're going we're gonna to hit some pads. And this was... Oh, this would have been about seven or eight years ago. And I loved it. And since then, he's been my main trainer. He's kind of taught me everything that I know about boxing. So I think, yeah, I've, I've been doing it now for eight years. Um, I, I do it here in New York. I train over at this great gym called Gleason's in Dumbo, which is this old school, like it's legendary, legendary <laughs> gym. I remember the first time walking in there, I was so intimidated, but you know, everyone's very welcoming and, and now I, I love it. It's kind of like a, a second home for me. I'm in there sort of three, sometimes four, four times a week. Um, but yeah, uh, what, loving what I like about boxing. I love the, the mental challenges that it, that it gives you um, the sense of, I started to do a bit of sparring last year, which was, took a lot of courage to do. 
Very humbling. <laughs> Very humbling. Yeah. Extremely humbling. But but walking out after you know getting smashed by some pro boxer with this huge sense of achievement and and you know feeling like the feeling like you could take on the world. Yeah, it's I I love boxing for that reason. It's like the feeling of you're in, you're in the ring, someone's throwing punches at you and all you want to do is bail. You're like, nope. But having to stay and then having to anticipate the fact that it's like physical and mental at the same time has been so incredibly grounding for me. Like, yeah. And it's also empowering. I, I like the idea of being able to hit someone and them hurting. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> Got a little is, bit of rage. Is. I don't very, know. Very, I can tell. <laughs> Lucky I have a, I'm yet to break a nose. Mm. So I can thank my... Uh, Full face headgear for that. But I, I went into my agency once with this sort of mark on my, below my eye. They're like, what did you, what happened to your eye? And I was like, oh, I can't. First rule of Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, lips are, my lips are sealed. Um, so what else keeps you grounded here in New York? Uh, I think a good, good group of friends. Uh, I live with one of my old school friends. Uh, he didn't go to my school, but we, we kind of, grew up in high school knowing each other and until this is I've only lived with him for about a year so the you know the two years that I lived in New York I was I was living with strangers and it it made such a difference living with a an, Austra an Australian but b someone you'd known for so long and that we had that different level of comfort with so that's been an, an, an awesome thing for me you know living with someone that I'm, I'm quite close with uh, we have complete, you know, really different schedules and and lifestyles here. But going home and we're always home at yeah. some point during the evening. It's really grounding to like know people who have friends who know you like before you're a model and before like your life kind of took this direction. And it's not like it's changed me that much, but it's just it's a different level of friendship I find, and that's why I love going home. Yeah, you know, I, I see agree. my friends and it's just like oh. You remember me when I had a mullet and braces? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, because, I mean, you're, you're talking about friendships that have, have been forged over so many years and, and you know, you come you come to New York and there's, like, a, there's a new set of friends. I think I was lucky and, obviously, you would probably support this in that we came over and you were probably part of that initial Aussie group, but I came over and had already been established and... and Naturally, when Australians move overseas, they, they move halfway across the world and, and gravitate towards other Aussies. Um, but I kind of, I moved into that. I moved over here when that group had been established and was welcomed in and it was such a nice thing to come to because you speak to so many people that come from other parts of the world and even move from other parts of America to New York and they just, they don't have that. They don't have that, you know, that group of friends to walk into. Yeah, it's, it makes such a huge difference, especially as models when you're constantly travelling, to be able to just have, like, a group of people to just, like, land with. It's yeah, very sure. powerful Absolutely. stuff. Um, what do you find the hardest part about modelling? Uh, the hardest part, I think, is the the unknowing of it all, the, the inconsistency, the sporadic nature of, of the work i think there's probably a lot less work for going around for male models um so it's yeah it's just it's that mystery of of, of the unknown like when and and also this this expectation that you're 
you might not hear from your agency for a, a week or so, but then all of a sudden you're expect you you get a you get a an email or a call the night before, expecting to be somewhere in the morning at six a.m. And and naturally, if you've made other plans, which I often have, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to cancel them. Yeah, never being able to like see a plan through was definitely one of the trickiest transitions for me, and like. You know, I'm going to Australia for some jobs and it's like, I'll either be gone for a week or I'll be gone for six weeks. Who knows? I don't know. My agents don't even know. It can be hard to have a life. Yeah, and you go back and forth there quite a bit. How many times would you go back in a year to Australia? Well, it depends on the year. Um, my record in the three-week period, I went from New York to London to work, to Spain to work, to Sydney to work, to Spain to work, to Melbourne to work, back to New York to work. And this was in like a two to three week period. I think that's my record. But like now I now I kind of, when I go, I try and stay for like at least a couple of weeks. But when I was early days, I didn't have any choice except just to like go. Yeah. And I mean, I did it. You have uh, a lot more stamina when you're young. <laughs> I was complaining about my Australia to Sweden to New York leg that I had to do last year. So I guess you've kind of put that into perspective I mean, for me. <laughs> I don't know. It's all relative, really. It's like I I feel like when I was 18, that sort of thing just like what washed over me. I didn't really care. Now, if I had to do that, I don't know. I'd need to like spend a week in hospital probably afterwards. <laughs> um, okay. I have two more questions. I guess we've kind of covered this one, but I'm curious, what would you want people to know about male modeling and like the male modeling world? That we can turn left. Whoa. <laughs> and what no, did you no, do prior um, to getting scouted? Look, it's, it's really hard to throw a blanket description over male models and be like, they're all like this. Uh, the fact is everyone's so different and it's a really, a really eclectic group of, of guys that have come from all across the globe. So yeah, it's not possible to make those generalizations. I can only talk about my own individual experience. You know, I don't know because I'm not on the outside making those, casting those um, assumptions or judgments. But as, as far as I'm concerned, like male models are generally speaking like pretty relaxed, carefree, dudes that just kind of roll roll with life and when you kind of have to do that being a male model because there is you know we don't have that constant work I mean there's probably a few guys that have that constant work but most of us are kind of just waiting going with it so if you if you were someone that needed needed that you know that constant structure then you probably wouldn't, it's probably not going to be suited to you. You'd go insane. Yeah, I sound like I, I, I struggle definitely with the downtime and then the idea, like just waiting for the next job. But I find it's like I'll spend weeks waiting and then all of a sudden I don't stop for three months and I'm just like, huh, okay, cool. Um, feast or famine. My final question, if you had 50 million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about mental health? Uh, I would want to tell them... See, I always thought that the awareness thing now had, had kind of been covered, but I, I think I, I'm wrong in assuming that because in, in recent, you know, I, I think I naively assume that, oh, everyone knows about, you know, anxiety and depression now because everyone speaks about it. But that's, as I 
certainly not the case because you speak to so many people that you know at least have a very very small understanding of of what it is and and how many people that it does affect so you know I, i'd like to s- spread more awareness but also get like try and get into the the specifics of helping people identify their own anxiety and depression because i think sometimes it's talked about so generally that unless you really like delve into the 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 nitty-gritty of it 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 may not you know it it can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming for people to to fully grasp i love that thank you um so i'm going to pass it over to ali and let's go deeper so first of all thank you so much for participating in our podcast we're so happy to have you here so we have in this studio douglas joseph who goes by dougie um, so I'm curious, cause I know when we first spoke, you said you'd never talked publicly about anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to start off with a question that I ask a lot of people, but tell us your reasons why you felt comfortable talking on this podcast and why you would like to talk about it publicly. So I think that it's, for me, it was just that I'd never really had an opportunity to speak publicly about it. Um, certainly to my friends I was and family, I felt like I was always quite open about it. Um, but yeah, I'd never, no one had ever presented me with, you know, something like this, a platform to, to speak about it to a, a wider range of, of people too. So when that, you know, when that came up, when Bridget did offer, then I kind of jumped at the opportunity. I wanted to talk about the diagnosis that you said you were given at a young age, generalized anxiety disorder. You said you started to experience anxiety early on. So tell us when it started, how old you were, and what you remember experiencing. So I'm sure that I had episodes of anxiety younger than I can remember back to. Um, But I certainly noticed it uh, rear its head in high school. Um, I have recollections of anxiety about exams and performing well, um, performing well in those exams, um, getting into trouble. Like if I got into trouble, the, uh, I'd, I'd become so, so worried about what the, the repercussions were going to be. So, you know, if I got in trouble for doing something, by a teacher and then they were then going to report back to my headmaster or or housemaster that little period in between them reporting to the headmaster housemaster which which could have been like a day or so you know for me getting the result would kind of really do my head in i I would i would worry excessively I, i mean i guess it's it's i guess it's uh you know it's it wouldn't be uncommon to have a little bit of angst about that. But for me, I think it was just, it was a lot. It was, it was so excessive. Okay. And when you say excessive, is there a way to even be more granular about that so that people understand? So I, I'd say consumed by it. So the, the level of attention that it, that my mind would give it would be just so strong and great that, that would be all I'd be thinking about. So an obsessional quality. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and did it ever, do you remember it ever affecting your physical body, whether that's like heart palpitations, raciness? Yeah, 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 for sure. I remember um, 
I remember one night in the library, I was a boarder, and one night in the library we were studying. Um, we weren't studying. We'd go to the library if we, if we wanted to, to bludge our study sessions, but we, we, we'd have to still make a, a conscious effort to pretend like we were, we were doing something. Um, anyway, there was a, the library ma master on duty went past us and I said something under my breath, which I, I shouldn't have said. And he didn't hear me, but I didn't know that there was a, my boarding master had happened to make the trip from the boarding house to the library to check on everyone. And he'd heard me say what I said. And basically he told me to get up, go to my room and that he was gonna, he was gonna speak to my, my house master the next day. So I remember that night being so consumed by this, this worry to the point where I couldn't sleep. I don't think I got a, a drop of sleep until I knew what was going to be the, you know, the end result from that little misdemeanor. I, I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to sleep. So I, yeah, for sure had that, you know, that, that weird feeling in your chest, which I've never really been able to explain. I guess, I don't know if tightness is, is the word. It's almost like there's a, a hollowness or maybe like a, a sense of nausea as well. And just so that we know the context, you said in high school, these symptoms, you started to notice at least. Yeah. And you were a boarder. Did you, did you switch schools? Or was high school a different school than previous? No, no. So I was a, I was a, I started off as a day boy at, at this school. Um, so I'd, I'd catch the ferry in every morning. And then from year nine, I mean, you, you guys might have different year categories here, but from year nine to 12, which is oh, our final years, I was, a, I was a boarder, so I stayed on campus. Okay, so it sounds like when you knew you were in trouble and didn't know the punishment, that was a trigger, but also performance-related thing. Yeah, for sure. So when were you diagnosed with GAD? Uh, it was after school, actually. I, th I think it was after school. Yeah, I think I would have been about 19. Uh, and my mum uh, got me to see this guy who I, I think is a psychologist. I hope as a psychologist, um, I just told her that I, I I used to tell my parents about some of the stuff that I was worrying about, and I guess they kind of sensed from that that I was that it was bothering me, and that also the stuff that I was worrying about perhaps I shouldn't have been worrying about that much. It didn't seem overly rational to them. What else do you think you want to say to young people? in terms of like what's important to recognize symptoms. Yeah, getting getting consumed by the by the thoughts, by these, you know, these anxious thoughts. Uh catastrophe you can never say it's this a hard word, word. catastrophizing. Yeah, or like th thinking the worst scenario yeah. is going to happen. Yeah. And so so these were symptoms which I guess I was I w I was aware of what I was doing but I didn't know any better. I didn't know that I wasn't meant to, you know, not go down that rabbit hole that of, of thinking, thinking about the worst case scenario of what, what could potentially happen and then staying in my mind and trying to work out how I could somehow overcome it. That was the thing, right? So I, I can't tell you how many hours I, I spent trying to go over you know, what I was worrying about in my head in order to, in order to come to some sort of solution which would help me free myself from that. 
it, it, you know, hours and hours and, and very, well, I don't think any, any time that I was able to, to do that. And that was, that was the, the problem. I just, I'd be so consumed by this negativity and or these, these anxious thoughts and I'd get so consumed by them and I'd just spend hours trying to work out how I could absolve myself. So did you find a way to... I think maybe like once or twice I, I, I might have, but but 99% of the time, no. It, it, in fact, it probably made it worse because when you're thinking about it, then you can think of other bad scenarios may, may come up, other possible you know, bad outcomes. Right, so the spiral just kept yeah, on exactly. going. Yeah, It's kind of like this domino effect. You open the floodgates to, to more to more of this, more of these bad, bad happenings. Yeah. And did these patterns of thinking, did they impair your ability to either study or work in whatever capacity you were working at that time? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I remember for sure with focus and concentration, like if, if I was having like this, you know, an anxious episode where I was, you know, trying to work through some anxious anxious thought um focusing on something else was extremely hard and i also didn't like i didn't like being around people when i was going through something like that because it was it was just it was as though that was like a that was something which would take me away from being able to work out what was going on and I just, you know, it was a, it was an added, it was a distraction. The other people were a distraction that I didn't need because right now I needed to focus on how I could solve this thing going on. So let me ask you, if you're aware, mm. when you would have these periods where you were in your head, mm. right, and thinking about these things, do you think other people from the outside could tell? I think so, for sure, because I, I think my personality would change a lot. And there were times when... I think my parents were able to pick up on it. I'd be around them, but I wouldn't be, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be present uh, in, their, in their company. Okay, so you're appearing distracted, you're just in your head. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because this is a common thing that a lot of people experience, and it's great if it's external and someone like your mom can catch it, right? Mm. But when it's internal, a lot of people keep it inside and also don't know what to do with it, right? So the struggle's just there and they're trying to cover it up. So. It's just good to open up this conversation and talk sure, about it. Sure, I agree. Right? And I yeah. certainly think there were, there were times where I did keep it within me and, and probably did a good job at, at hiding from it, uh, hiding, sorry, hiding it from people around me. Okay. So it sounds like it peaked at age 19 and you went to a provider. So you started modeling at 21. Yeah. How did the nature of your anxiety either start to change or evolve after you started modeling? I think the the modeling just gave another set of stimuli for my anxiety to work, you know, work within. Uh, I started realizing that I was in these high pressure situations, uh, which may have come from, you know, big shoots with, you know, big name photographers, uh, runway shows, presentations. They were now, you know, it was that was the perfect, uh, perfect place or situation for my anxiety to just run rife. I remember doing a fashion, and there was a, there was a theme 
to all this stuff, which will which will become apparent. I remember there was this presentation that I was doing for Milan Fashion Week, and I was really happy I got this job. It was one of the biggest things I'd landed that Fashion Week, so naturally I was really excited to be doing it, and you know had had this sense of achievement. Anyway, I, re I remember going in on the day going for hair and makeup. We do get our hair and makeup. I actually had my ma a manicure and pedicure that day as well. Uh, this, was a pre this was a presentation and it was, also, it was also in the middle of summer. So it's stinking hot in Milan. Um, so basically for this presentation, we had to, we were instructed that we, once we got in our looks, we'd have to stand in the one spot for three hours and we weren't allowed to move and, and hold, yeah, hold, hold your pose, which I was like, I was like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, I remember being in the, getting my hair and makeup done and starting to you know, I had this sense of achievement. I was like, I'm happy to be here. This is huge. Um, probably one of the biggest things I'd done. And then like my mind was like, well, how could you possibly, how could you screw this up? <laughs> and so I, my, my mind started thinking like how, how, like of ways that I could potentially like stuff this up because I hadn't done, you know, I hadn't done the presentation yet. And, you know, unless I complete it, then I can't go and that it means nothing. And I started to really notice the heat Right, and I was like, God, it's like, it's it's really hot here. I'm at, what if I start sweating while while I'm standing in the in the same position for for three hours? And then I started to worry about that. And I was like, Oh God, if I start sweating heaps and like it's showing and it's apparent on my face, then you know they're gonna they're gonna pull me from the pull me from the presentation. So this is this is just festering whilst I'm sitting in the in the makeup chair. And by the way, the lady was caking makeup on me. Um, anyway, I think I had a moment to try and calm myself down, but not long after that, we had to, we had to go out and, and uh, assume our, our positions. And I remember everyone like walked out in the line and, and they were doing the final touch-ups. And I guess I'd already kind of started sweating a little bit. And the makeup lady that was doing my touch-ups was like, ooh, dear, you've already started sweating. And that was the worst thing that she could have said to me at that time. So all of a sudden, I'm now like, I am full blown, full blown anxiety. I'm getting the, you know, the physical symptoms, like, you know, that weird feeling in my chest. And I'm trying to like calm myself down somehow. But this thing that I'm about to do, this three hour stand in the one, it just, it seemed impossible for me to do. And I remember just before everyone had assumed their positions and just before we were, they were going to let everyone in to come and view the presentation, I wiped my cheek and there was this, you know, I, this massive piece of, this massive chunk of makeup was, I saw on my, on my finger. So I was already sweating and basically for the whole three hours, I just remember being in, being so uncomfortable, so anxious and, and trying to just calm myself down. Anyway, after three hours, which what seemed like to me three days, I went out and I was, I was happy that I'd, I'd got through it, right? I, I was sweating, like I was sweating profusely. But I spoke to a few other boys and found out that two guys had fainted whilst being there. So two guys had literally fainted, passed out and had to be taken away in ambulances. 
and pretty much everyone else was had been sweating profusely as well. I don't think they were as anxious about it that I, <laughs> as I was. Right, and I think anxiety or not, that sounds really difficult to do. <laughs> presentations are pretty bad. Like I have had to do presentations where I've been standing in shoes two sizes too small because I have giant feet and, you know, sweating and just feeling like I'm going to faint. And, yeah, it's, it's crazy that that is allowed. And, like, you have to, like – fight to be able to use the bathroom or oh, get yeah, some water yeah. I, I like if we had a bath to use the bathrooms they're like no no way really yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, we yeah I've, so, I've had to fight for that so if you could deconstruct that a little bit just looking at it more like rationally what was anxiety provoking was it the idea of like how am I going to make it through the three hours or was it the pressure of what it meant to do the presentation and the outcome for your career yeah, I think a bit of a bit of that. The the pressure of getting through it because I, I guess my I guess the crux of my anxiety there was the thought was that I was gonna get cut from the presentation and therefore I wouldn't be able to you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done the presentation, therefore it, it wouldn't have been on my resume. Okay. And there, and therefore it it you know, what a shame because it, it would have meant nothing. Right. And the only reason I focus on that is because it sounds like you were having anticipatory anxiety, right? Already thinking, okay, what if I fail? I'm just yes, extrapolating. Yes. No, no, no. That sounds and then that very thought, accurate. Yeah. And that thought, what if I fail, then causes the anxiety before the thing even happens. Right. Yeah. So it's like doomed to fail. Sure. And that cycle, that kind of cycle is a common one, right? Yeah. So a thought leads to a feeling which leads to maybe a behavior, maybe someone flees or, or yeah. just more anxiety. Right. And so there is, there are techniques, you know, cognitive therapy is one, but you know, where you can undo that cycle if there are patterns and it comes up time mm. and time again. But I pull that out there cause it sounds like that. Yeah, no, that I mean, loaded. even just saying that then what yeah. like now I can think of a host of other examples where I have, you know, predicted failure before, you know, having done the Actually, same. Yeah. So I'm just sitting here having my mind blown a little like bit. Ding. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm always freaking out that I'm going to do a bad job on set, and I never do. Mm. And I have an, like I'll have an anxiety attack and terrify myself and not sleep. And then I go to set, and it's just another day on set. It's very strange. And yeah. also, <laughs> even like you know, say worst case scenario that you do you do have that bad day on set, and you you don't perform for some reason. I. I can say quite certainty that the the outcome of that, the result of that is going to be nowhere near as bad as our anticipation of how bad it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. So to just make that conscious, I think, helps to maybe ease moments like that. I mean, that takes work and therapy. Sure. But um, yeah, because even what you brought up in your younger years about the worry of like, if I get in trouble, what is the punishment? And I think the stress for you in waiting for the answer was like, what is the nature of the punishment yeah, yeah. for what I did? Meaning what's the outcome, right? So something's, I mean, everyone is different in what drives them or what affects them, but maybe for you, that's one of the themes. Yeah. By the way, I forgot to add to that, that story that of when I was in school and got in trouble and was anxious because I didn't know what was going to happen. Nothing ended up happening from that. He didn't even tell my housemaster. So it was like I went through all of that and you know, for, for nothing. I was, I was spared 
Exactly. So does that realization help prevent it the next time, though? Don't know. I think it... So I had this little realization a while ago. I, I can't pinpoint the exact time, but I'd go, I'd go through these cycles, you know, these, the same cycles of anxiety where I'd get caught up in this, this, this anxious thought and I'd be thinking, you know, of these terrible outcomes that, that, that you know, may potentially happen. And I remember... It was one day and, and I had one of these episodes coming on and I was like, man, I, just, like, I can't be bothered dealing with it because they're so draining. They take up so much energy. And I was like, I really can't be bothered dealing with this right now. And I kind of, I recognized that and I was kind of speaking to myself and I was like, how many times have you been through this same exact feeling? And how many times has, you know, how many times has what you've worried about actually come into fruition? And literally not once. Interesting. Yeah, so exactly. The reality of the outcome is different from your perceived anticipation mm. about the outcome. So, uh, yeah, I was just, look, I was going through the same thing over and over, and it was never, nothing was ever happening. And so after a while, and then that was good, that became good for me, like in future episodes where I was, able to recognize it early on because it is it is the same feeling it's the same cycle of like physical sensation and and you know thoughts that you go through in in pretty much every episode so for you what happens first is it the physical that you feel first no it's definitely the thought you get the thought okay. in your head and then you get the physical i think sometimes now i've and this is like this may sound strange but i feel like i have the physical symptoms of anxiety, but like my mind seems fine. And maybe, and I don't know if that is induced through other forms of anxiety. I notice that when I have with alcohol. Okay. Okay. So t since you brought up alcohol, yeah. tell us about alcohol. Okay. Alcohol for me is something that really negatively impacts my anxiety. I don't feel the need to drink excessively every time I go out, but there are certainly times when you're out with your friends and you're going to end up having a couple more drinks than you, right? And I found that when that happens, I'm just so much more susceptible to these uh, anxious episodes. Um, and I didn't realize that. I, I realized, I recognized that quite late uh, in the piece. So I remember going to, I went to Europe, a lot of Australians, to a little Euro trip. Those who aren't modeling from a young age, Bridget, uh, go gap year. We, went, we went to Europe and, and had our gap here. And generally that's associated with a lot of partying and drinking, right? Going around Europe, seeing the sights when you can, but predominantly partying. So I would have been 19. I would have been 18. I would have said, I, I think I knew about my, I may have got that uh, age wrong when I was diagnosed with the generalized anxiety, I must have still been in, in high school. So I was aware that I had anxiety, but going to Europe and doing this three month trip, I noticed that it was so much more prevalent and I was getting it so much more often. And I had no idea, but obviously it was because of alcohol because we were drinking so much. Anyway, it wasn't until probably two or three years down the track that I 
was able to make that make that distinction and now i've i you know i'm so aware of it and i know that you know i think when you're when you've had i don't know the neuroscience behind when you have you know what happens in your brain when when you have excessive alcohol i know it's got something to do with the it changes the, the new messes with the neurons and yeah for me it, it makes me just so much more susceptible to to having these anxious episodes it makes me feel like i'm a lot more vulnerable and i often describe it as like it's like a lowering it's like a diminishing of confidence when you're i make the the example of it'd be a lot easier to it my one of my biggest nightmares is like getting up in front of a, a group of people and speaking when I'm really hungover because that means I'm going to be like super anxious and fragile. But like if I've, you know, if I've had a fresh week of being healthy, then I could I could probably do that. Okay, and that was my question. It was going to be my question. So you're most vulnerable in the withdrawal phase, meaning the hangover, as opposed to when you're intoxicated, right? Because oh, most yeah, people yeah, drink absolutely. because of anxiety, right? It calms down the anxiety, but you're talking about the after effects. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just to be concrete, yeah. Yes, Okay. yes. Yeah, no, I, 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 I do know people that drink for anxiety, but for me, that is just setting myself up for disaster. Because I, I, if I was to do that, if I was to drink to kind of calm my anxiety, I'd, it, it wouldn't work because I'd already be thinking about the next day and how bad that's going to be. So I wanted to go to another example that you gave me when we first spoke. Yeah. And you mentioned it. We, you, you said that your anxiety gets triggered when you're working with maybe photographers who are prominent and yeah. have a big reputation. Sure. So can you tell us what happens or if you remember a moment where that was particularly difficult and how did you handle it? I think it was just um, like big shoots. You're, you know, I guess you've got big expectations. It's, it's kind of similar in the you know similar to what i was talking about with that presentation you've got this sense of achievement from being there and, and you don't want to you don't really want to screw it up the stakes are higher um whereas you know if it was a more more low like casual shoot then you're not you're not really concerned so it's because you're you know in your mind you're so aware and and conscious of 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 the magnitude of of this shoot and you know how happy you are to be a part of it and the sense of achievement that you've got you know that there is the that there is the problem in itself because that then starts to you know trigger these thoughts like oh you don't want to stuff it up like it'd be be terrible if you stuff it up i had a runway show which was a similar thing and this is probably like the worst anxiety i've had with modeling so I had this, I did this runway show and I remember being fitted for it the day before the show and I tried on the clothes and they, you know, they fit great. And then I, I turned up the next day and I think the tailor had done something to them because I tried on this coat and it was so tight on me, right? And it just felt so constricting. And of course, I, I became aware of that, of how constricting it was and then it, you know, I started to feel a little bit claustrophobic and then I realized my, my heart was going and then the thoughts start flooding in like, oh, big, you know, 
massive runway show. I was walking directly behind. Um, so I remember standing in line. They made us wait in line before we went out for about 20 minutes. So just the perfect, the perfect scenario. Uh, I've been in that line. I know exactly for, for what it feels like. To just, ru- just go, just go berserk. And I start, you know, I just, I was like, I was worrying about the sweating again. I was like, that's what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to start sweating in line. They're going to see me. And then they're going to pull me from the show. And I think, I can't be certain, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I was about to have my first panic attack because I started to get those initial, initial uh, symptoms. And I was like, holy shit, like, what is happening? At that stage, I wasn't really aware of, of panic attacks. Anyway, my... This kind of goes back to what you're asking in, in uh, how do you deal with this kind of stuff. I didn't deal with it intentionally, but my, my focus got, I, I, I got sidetracked momentarily by a photographer who came over and, and asked me for a photo. And that little interruption there was enough to bring me out of the whole thing, which I thought was like really interesting because... Even after that, you know, the, 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 this photograph took oh, 10 seconds and then I went back into line and I was expecting it to, expecting it to come again, but it didn't. And I, and I knew, I knew I, after about, you know, 10 seconds of me standing in the line, I knew it wouldn't come again. Right, so you need an external distraction. Probably that was like validating too, right? I imagine if yeah, it was validating because yeah. he got a it was he was he got a photo of me. Uh, okay, right. So that helped with whatever the fear was in your mind. Yes. It was relating to the moment. And I think you mentioned when we spoke that sometimes you notice that when there is anxiety, like whether it's a photographer or a runway shoot, you feel uneasy, so you withdraw. Also, yeah. Is that something that happens? Yeah, commonly? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think when I'm when I'm most comfortable, I'm really quite extrovert and and loud and confident. But then, yeah, when 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 I'm anxious, obviously completely the opposite, and I do kind of I do retract, sort of, and I don't like that because I don't like that's not me being the best version of myself. Yeah, but it's a response to the anxiety. Yeah. So I know that you mentioned that sports are important to you, cricket, rugby, boxing. Um, do you ever notice anxiety coming up while you're playing competitive sports, whether it's performance-related or otherwise? Uh, I, I probably notice it now more than I did back then, which is kind of, I find, quite intriguing. Like, I used to do a lot of debating and public speaking, and... I would I would get up in front of people and do that easily, you know, without blinking an eyelid. But I found as as I've gotten older that I'm less and less comfortable doing that. Until lately I've kind of I've started doing these acting classes which have really sort of pushed me beyond the bounds of my comfort zone. So I'm kind of going back to that, you know, that that level of a uh, level of comfort that I I once had, but in terms of um, sport, I mean I remember I I I don't think I ever had performance anxiety with with like the motocross or the boxing. I certainly used to like worry about stuff when I was in bed at night. Like oh, what if I had a big accident? 
paralyze myself and from boxing like what if i you know what if i got a big blow to the head and got knocked out um but performance anxiety with sports not so much but definitely with other things for sure okay so going back to then public speaking and debate mm. why do you think or how do you understand why that's gotten more difficult as you've gotten older i'm not sure i was probably i was a lot i guess when i was younger this was when i was in primary school and even mo most of most of high school as well i was a public speaker and debater um, I certainly remember being less comfortable with it in high school. I guess I was a lot less inhibited and, and I was more carefree and I kind of embraced that whole thing about getting up in front of people. But now maybe, you know, there's this, that, that performance anxiety thing, like what if I... What if I don't perform? How is that going to come across to people? What am I going to look like? Da, 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 da. Let's go back to panic attacks because you mentioned the onset of a panic attack. Yeah. And have you had panic attacks? So, yeah, the, the reason I was, I can look back at that runway experience and see that I was about to have a panic attack was because I actually had one during a boxing class. So I teach these boxing classes and... I had one, basically I'd, I'd had a big week for fashion week, which involved a lot of, you know, going out, mingling and, and more alcohol than you would usually have in the, in the standard week. And then on top of that, straight after I had friends from Australia fly in for New York. So they were obviously here for a good time, not a long time. So that was another week of, of, of partying and again, more alcohol than I would usually have in a, in a typical week. So basically I'd come off the back of two weeks out partying, not a huge amount of sleep. And I had this boxing class to teach on Sunday morning. And I remember I woke up and I just, I just didn't feel right at all. Like, you know, I was, I was anxious, but you know, it was, it was just a little bit more intense than the, you know, than the, usual anxiety that I'd get after I'd had a few too many drinks. Anyway, I had, I actually got through the first class okay. I teach two in a row on Sundays. So the classes are 45 minutes long. I don't actually have to, it's not physically strenuous for me because I'm just there telling people how it is. It's a dark room. I've got a microphone, music's blaring. So I guess I'm projecting my voice quite a lot, which is, which is somewhat exhausting. But I know these, I've taught so many of these classes. I know, you know, I know them. I know the structure of them, like the, the back of my hand. So there's this part at the start where I basically give this three, four minute spiel on, you know, we go through the punches, the, uh, the defense, everything the people know, need to know to get them through class. And I've said this, I've given this spiel about you know, thousands of times by now. So I can literally, I could be doing anything and I could still be able to, to, to recite it. It comes so naturally. Anyway, it's, it's my second class and I'm going through, I'm probably halfway through this, what we call the, the technical demonstration where I'm explaining everything to everyone. And I notice that 
I notice my heart starts beating. And then I notice I got really short of breath to the point where I really had to slow down my, what I was saying. And then, and, and that, was, that was as far as I got to with that, um, in terms of physical symptoms with that runway experience. But then the next thing that happened was my arm went numb. <laughs> my arm went numb. So that was scary. But I'd, had, I'd spoken to enough people that had had ang uh, panic attacks before that I knew that I was able to recognize what it was straight away. And I was like, holy shit, you're having a panic attack. And obviously, I had no idea what to expect from then. I was like, how long does it last? And then I remember the room kind of started spinning for a bit. Whilst this is happening, I'm still kind of, I'm still able to get out a few words during this demo, right? Because I'm towards the end of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm determined to finish it. And I know it so well that, uh, you know, I can basically do it under any situation including apparently a panic attack but there was certainly a moment where i was like whether you know the room started spinning my 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 hand my arms my right i think it was my right arm was just completely numb and i was like this is insane i was like if, if this gets any more intense like i'm done i think for a moment i stopped and just took a moment and i think by that stage i was i was kind of just i wanted to just get out the last sentence and then i could go go to the lights, dim the lights and crank the music. And then I, I could give myself a moment to just kind of gather myself. But I remember thinking like, it, it, it felt like at that most intense stage that I'd really lost control, but, but it's, it, it didn't get any worse and it immediately got a little bit better. Good enough that I could go to the lights dim the, you know, dim the lights and then turn the music up and give myself a little bit of time to gather myself. And I'm, I've assumed at this stage that people are, have definitely sensed that something's up with me. Anyway, I've managed to get through the rest of the class um, because that's certainly the most, the part where you're, you're most vulnerable because the lights are up and everything's quiet. I kind of used the, the lights and the music as a way to hide myself from everyone after that. So I got through this class and I had a friend taking it and I, I went up to her and I was like, hey, did you notice anything funny at the start of class? And she was like, no, not at all. So I don't know whether she's just being nice or, or what. But yeah, that was my first instance of of having a, a panic attack. And I'm glad I, I knew what it was because I can't tell you the amount of people that I've spoken to that have described, that have told me about their panic attacks and thought that they were having a heart attack or a stroke. And, and if I hadn't known, then I probably, I probably would have thought that. Like my, I think my only saving grace in that situation was knowing what I was having and knowing that it's not gonna kill me. Yeah, and how old were you when that happened? That was like six months ago. That was recently. Yeah. Okay. And it seems like because of the surroundings, which were familiar and something that you performed all the time, that wasn't the trigger. But do you have a sense of why that panic attack came up? Uh, yeah. So I think I do because I was, I started reading about triggers and this is going to sound so ridiculous. So obviously the anxiety, the, my anxiety was, was rife because of the, the alcohol that I'd had in the, the last week or so. Like that was 
one hundred percent the the main the main issue here. During I mentioned that it happened in my second class. I between classes, so I finished the first one, I went back to the little area where the instructors just hang out and sort of gather themselves before they, you know, do their next class. And it's this tiny little room. And one of the employees that worked at this, I don't know how old she is, but she, I think she's in her late 20s, early 30s, and you know, lovely lady, we, we get along, we talk, talk all the time. She started asking me about modeling, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, it's like, it's fun. I've done it for seven or eight years. And she's like, yo, I want to get an agency. Like, what do you reckon? Do you reckon I've got a chance? And I was like, I was like, yeah, look, you've got to, you've got to give your, you got to send in digitals to the, to the agencies and, and you know, they'll, if they like you, they'll, they'll hit you up. And then I added, but usually like it's, it's really hard to, to get signed if you're not like 16, 17, because they really like, you know, it's, it's all about young girls so they can sort of develop their career. And she took the assistance the wrong way and took it as though I was saying that she had no chance. And in fact, taking it a step further, suggesting that I was, I was inferring that she was ugly. So she'd then gone out and started telling people like that, that, you know, that I, he said I was ugly. And I've heard this and it has just, it has set me off. I got so angry. Anyway, I went into the, I, I went into the room um, because it was time now to teach my, my second class. And I just remember being so worked up and so riled up. And I, I hadn't calmed down by the time I had to do this start, start class, start going, going through that technical demonstration and then boom, that's when I had that. Like well, it a, sounds like a confluence of things, right? The yeah. susceptibility because of the alcohol, the drinking yeah. in the background, plus a moment where you felt misunderstood or yeah. misinterpreted mm. and then she was telling people about that. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone has a set of triggers usually that are underlying either discrete moments of anxiety or panic attacks. And it's about who you are, your psychological makeup, your earlier influences, your genetics, biology, and then what's happening in the moment. You know, it's usually complicated, but specific to you. Mm. So, mm. I want to switch gears though a little bit. Because um, as, you, as you've been speaking, I've been thinking about you know, what you've said about male modeling, and we've been interviewing a lot of women so far, and there's a lot of eating disorders, body image stuff that's coming up. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about body image from your perspective and what it means to you. I mean, you're an athlete, right? So um, maybe there's a different set of expectations. Yeah, but what what's the deal on body image being a male model? <laughs> so look, I'll be the first to proclaim that I don't think male models have the pressure that girls have on them to kind of, you know, adhere to these body images, these body standards um, or, or, you know, body measurements. We, I think we have a lot more leeway and, and flexibility in, in terms of, you know, how our body weight can fluctuate. And you notice that because you see like, I mean, look, it, it, it granted the industry is, is, is changing now, but but back when it was a bit more sort of old school, um, you still noticed that there was, you know, there were like bigger buffer guys and then there were like super skinny dudes and then there were, I don't know, there were guys which would 
kind of in between, neither here nor there. So I never, like, I, I never, re, I never recall people, you know, feeling pressure to, you know, try and adhering to these like unrealistic body body images. Sorry, body measurements. Um, but I think the the issue with it comes when you know you start comparing yourselves to other people so you know you'd you'd be in a casting and there'd be 30 dudes in there and everyone would have their shirts off and there's a lot of uh testosterone a lot of machos in there um but you know your instinct then is to you know start comparing yourself to to the other guys in the room like how how ripped am i compared to to that to them you know like how good is my physique compared to them right so it's muscle definition yeah which is yeah, so yeah, different yeah 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 women. exactly yeah. and i think with certain personality types that you know have that may have an undertone of perfectionism to them that you know and want to be the the best uh i think sometimes i have elements of of, of being a perfectionist generally i've noticed this with my sport that i do if ever i'm if ever i'm doing i have you know involved in a sport or an activity like i want to do it to the best i kind of want to train like i'm trying to be the best and i noticed that with you know the motocross and then how serious i i took the boxing even though i certainly wasn't going to be the best at that um but yeah, so I guess the the danger with with the comparing yourself to other people is then how far are you you know willing to go to try and take take that number one spot, um, and you know I I know a lot of guys that were you know super obsessive and I I certainly had elements of this um, when I was when I just started modeling the obsessiveness with you know your workouts and and it was never about it was never you know, it was never me looking in the mirror and being like, "Oh, I don't look. I don't like how I look." Um, it was. It was always about, "Oh, how can I like? How can I get? How can I improve a little bit? Like, how can I go like one step further here?" And and you know, with working out, diet. There was a there was a period where I was really like strict with my diet and would do that no carbs thing before after 6 p.m. and I remember going to bed and I was like pretty hungry yeah I, I think it's like with modeling there's so little that you can control and so like what you can control at least in my experience is my weight my size and so even though it doesn't automatically translate into a better career in fact it often for me it's had the opposite effect when I've gotten too obsessive but like it's something at least that I can focus on so it's like why not yeah sure and and I mean the other problem is that there's if you're comparing yourself to someone else there's always it's you know in the modeling game there's always going to be someone else that is you know gonna be for a guy that's going to be more ripped for a girl that's probably gonna have a you know a, a smaller waistline there's all so it's like it's kind of that quest for that perfection is is never ending and you know the the longer you stay on that path i guess the more dangerous it is what would you tell young people who are experiencing anxiety, like similar to you have? What would be your advice to them? Uh, I actually wrote this down because I, did, I wanted to 
make sure that I, I got all this stuff out. Um, so basically, so you asking for like tips and just general advice for yes. it? Yeah. So I've set out on this recently kind of set out on this quest to, you know, see whatever I see what I can do to, to reduce and, and minimize my anxiety. So the, the first thing that I would say is of the utmost importance and this is this is in terms of when it does rear its head. Okay, so there's things you can do to combat it when it when it does rear its head, but there's also things you can do uh, to kind of to stop it or minimize the amount of times that it that it rears its head. So when it does rear its head, I first and foremost I think the the ability to be able to recognize it is the most important thing, and I think I believe my awareness practice my meditation has really helped me with all that stuff so with without your without being aware of what's happening without you know that awareness and knowing that what's happening to you this sensation is is your anxiety you're you're going to get caught up in your thoughts and that's the worst thing to do so you're going to try and as as we spoke about before go down that rabbit hole and try and work out in your mind you know how to how to solve how to solve this irrational issue and 99 times out of a hundred there's no there's no solution it's just going to make it worse so and how does mindfulness or meditation help you so mindfulness teaches you to to recognize it but then recognize it and then sort of place it to the side and then and then move on and i was i remember being skeptical about that at first because I was like oh that's not you know you can't just put it to the side because that's not dealing with it like you need to deal with it and then and then it's gone forever but what I found is that you know when I did put it to the side and then you know maybe the more the the longer I was able to not think about it the less important it became Right. So, and then like after two days of me, like, you know, being conscious about not, you know, not thinking about it, not, not delving into it after a couple of days, it, you know, if it did, if that thought did revisit, revisit itself, if I did revisit that thought, then all of a sudden, like it was as though, though the anxiety had completely dissipated and gone, which was, yeah, very interesting. I, 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 li I was listening to this podcast the other day i think it was uh sam harris that was talking about it and he's and it was you know to do with awareness and mindfulness and he was saying the only thing that matters the only things that matter is whatever your mind's giving attention to right so it, it it's, it's obvious with your anxiety your mind gives it so much attention and it matters so much and you can you know you can draw parallels with you know, you get a stain on a new piece of clothing. You're giving it so much attention, that stain, you know, for the first day that it's such a big issue, but then you forget about it. And all of a sudden, because you've, you've stopped giving that, that, that stain any attention, then it no longer matters. So sa same goes with anxiety. Um, so yeah, awareness, acknowledging is... Is, is, a, is a game changer for sure. Yeah, and it's really the first step. Right, yes. To be aware. Yeah. Um, and then going on to how you kind of 
stop it from rearing its head in the first place. I've put, you know, know your limits with alcohol, know how many drinks, are, you know, you need to have before your anxiety is likely going to to present itself the next morning. If you have something coming up, like something important, um, you know, something in a, an event, a situation that may be, you know, conducive, maybe a conducive environment to triggering your anxiety, then it's a great idea to not drink. It's a really good idea to not drink. Exercise is a, is a given, obviously, and, you know, that's helped me, the boxing. I'm sure you'd vouch for that, Bridget. Um, you know, boxing exercise is its own form of, of therapy. And if you don't, the, the thing that I would say to people who don't, ex who, you know, don't exercise but experience anxiety, try and, you know, recognize how you are, you know, how you're feeling when you've got anxiety and then rec recognize how you are post-exercise. So make yourself exercise and I'm sure you're going to notice some sort of a difference. Uh, then the final thing I had was, and this is a new thing that I'm discovering lately, probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, Ali. Um, my morning routine and the amount of time, screen time I have and time spent on Instagram. Mm. Deleting the app off my phone is yes. a must. <laughs> I like 90% of my time, I don't have the app on my phone and I'm a much happier person. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gone through and muted everybody who makes me feel bad about myself. Yeah. See, I've, I've just sort of noticed the, the impact that, it, you know, that's been having and it's, it's, it's insane. I try and do this thing where I don't look at my phone for the first two hours of every morning. And I can tell you the days that I do that, where I'm able to see that through go two hours without looking at my phone, it is, it, it does, it makes the world of difference. Okay. And the days that you do. So what happens? To I'm you? all over the place. I'm like, I'm scattered. scrambled, scattered, and I'm obviously more susceptible to these anxious episodes. If you look at it the other way, if we think about people who have anxiety, which then can lead to insomnia. And I know you mentioned when you were younger, you had that episode where you were up all night. Mm. Um, we have to look at what are the good habits for a good sleep hygiene, right? And one of them is no digital devices, like after 8 p.m. if you want to get to bed by 11, right? Because it is inherently stimulating. But it's interesting you mentioned it in the morning that it sets the stage for yeah. a, a different day. And I certainly notice that yeah. you know, if I'm on my phone before I go to bed, it's harder to get, it takes me longer yeah. to get to sleep. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's good advice. Thank you for that. Um, where are you today? I know you mentioned the panic attacks six months ago, but day to day, where are you with your anxiety symptoms? Are they manageable? Are they still flaring? Yeah, I think they're, they're certainly manageable yeah. uh, compared to what, how they used to be. I think I've got a pretty good, a pretty good grip on them. There's certainly, there's always work to do. And I still get, you know, I still get the odd case where I, you know, where I get caught up and I, and I do happen to go down that rabbit hole for whatever reason. Okay. Um, but, but those episodes are becoming, becoming less and less. I think the biggest thing for me now is, is still like this area of, of performance anxiety. So having, you know, having a, like I was a little bit nervous even today coming to this, uh, and but look, these acting classes that I've been going to have been helping immensely. So and the the takeaway from that is um, doing stuff which takes you out of your comfort zone. 
And have you helps. ever been to therapy or taken medications for the anxiety? No medication, yeah. no therapy, but I would certainly be open to therapy. Yeah. So you've been doing it on your own, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I put in the podcast, which you'll hear before my let's get clinical segment is the tabla. It's like a blast of tabla because for me, the drums, because for me, it's nice to find a way to get out of your head. I don't have an anxiety disorder, but like I notice that when I'm like stressed or lots of things that are like on my to-do list going around and around, if I listen to the tabla, like a blast of it, it just gets me out of my head. So I put it in this podcast. Mm -hmm. So, cause it sounds like you, you have those moments too, where something can pull you out of your yeah, head yeah, yeah. or you can compartmentalize and push it over mm -hmm. here. Sure. Oboe does that for me. Yeah. <laughs> Whittling an oboe reed or like playing, but actually more making reeds. Yeah. Like it's just so fiddly and I have to spend so many hours concentrating not like right. to do it so exactly that's all right. your concentration it's is going brilliant. I'm such a better person. Like it's great. Yeah. So thank you so much for your honesty and candor here. I think it's fantastic to hear, you know, how, what your experience of anxiety is and how you've been coping with it. And especially the alcohol as a factor in your vulnerability. Yeah, thank you. This was great. No I'm worries. like, anxiety is super easy to <laughs> yeah. beat. You can do it. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was yeah. a pleasure. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah. Final words, Bridget? Um, honestly, I'm thinking like white page, black dot. Whenever I, I, I was anxious as a kid, like I didn't, I had, had insomnia and I was an anxious kid and my dad would be like, your life is a white page and this anxiety is just a black dot in the middle of the page. Mm. And like, cause it's a white page all you can see is this black dot, but there's all this life around you. Yeah. Yeah. Perspective. You are listening to model mentality. Welcome to let's get clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests, personal stories and the larger mental health context. You have just been listening to our interview with Dougie Joseph. So let's review Dougie's story. Dougie started modeling at age 21 after getting scouted in Australia, and his experience with anxiety predates the start of his modeling career. In Dougie's words, quote, modeling was another set of stimuli for the anxiety to appear within, end quote. He notes that he felt comfortable being vocal about his anxiety to family, but realizes that not everyone feels the same way. Dougie wants to create awareness around anxiety, which is the reason for him speaking openly on our podcast. From anticipatory anxiety at a young age, when being disciplined by teachers at a boarding school, to performance anxiety within and outside of his career as an adult, Dougie has been navigating how to manage his anxiety for as long as he can remember. His anxiety peaks when facing higher stakes, and more recently, he has become more aware of the harmful effects of alcohol on his anxiety levels, specifically how he becomes more vulnerable to anxiety after a prolonged period of heavy drinking. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three things. First, his diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. Second, the patterns of catastrophic thinking, what I referred to on the podcast as catastrophizing, and third, the connection between anxiety and alcohol. So first, what is generalized anxiety disorder? Generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD, is an anxiety disorder affecting approximately 5% of adults in the United States at some point in their lives, according to the National Comorbidity Survey from Harvard Medical School. GAD is associated with excessive and persistent worry on most days for at least six months that's hard to control and that causes significant distress every day. 
We heard in Dougie's story that he would withdraw from people during acute periods of anxiety because he felt that he needed to focus on solving the issues that were plaguing him, but 99% of the time, he could not solve things even though his mind was continuously ruminating over the situation. An important thing to note is that although the main symptom is excess worry, many people will feel it physically in the form of body aches and pains, especially in the neck, back, and shoulders, fatigue, insomnia, irritability, difficulty with concentration, and feeling on edge or feeling agitated. As you heard in Dougie's story, once he is in a triggering situation, he starts to feel physical symptoms of anxiety right away. Because the symptoms feel physical, many people come to healthcare providers searching for an answer and may repeatedly undergo tests that come back normal. You may have heard the term somatic symptoms of anxiety. This term refers to physical symptoms that are medically unexplained and often accompany the emotional experience of anxiety. The cause is anxiety as opposed to a physical health condition. Women are twice as more prone to GAD than men, and GAD is more common among people with a history of trauma, OCD, and substance and alcohol abuse. Treatment is effective and includes therapy such as CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation techniques such as deep breathing and yoga, which are great for anxiety, and medications such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs. So folks, if you are a worrier, there is no evidence that worrying is healthy. To the contrary, GAD is linked to poor cardiac health, such as increased blood pressure, diagnoses of hypertension, as well as increased rates of coronary heart disease. The takeaway, if you are a worrier and it consumes you from the mental to the physical, it's a good idea to seek help to reduce your levels of anxiety to stay in good health. Now let's talk about catastrophic thinking. You heard in our interview with Dougie that he has a history of catastrophizing, a concept which refers to periods of thinking and assuming that the worst will happen. He also experiences anxiety about having anxiety, and at times an impaired ability to work and be productive when the anxiety becomes all-consuming. It's well known that catastrophizing, or assuming the worst-case scenario will happen, is linked to anxiety disorders. For Dougie, one of his specific examples from the interview is that when fear of failure enters his head before a big moment, such as walking a runway show or performing in some way, this is a trigger for his anxiety, and it immediately leads to physical symptoms, but usually he performs well despite what he assumed or what he was thinking in the moment. If this sounds like you, please know that treatment is available. CBT is an effective form of therapy for this type of thought pattern. However, because catastrophic thinking can be linked to GAD, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, and other conditions, it's best to have an evaluation with a behavioral health provider to further assess any underlying conditions. And finally, what's the connection between anxiety and alcohol? Dougie describes his realization that alcohol makes him more susceptible to anxiety. So what's the science behind this? Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. And if one is drinking heavily and then stops, this can make the whole central nervous system overactive in the withdrawal or hangover phase. It's more complicated than this, but the thing to know is that this phenomenon is especially worse in those who drink on a regular basis. Once Dougie witnessed this connection in himself, he started to minimize his alcohol intake. 
and he feels much healthier and happier understanding this connection. Dougie's story probably resonates with many of you because anxiety, catastrophic thinking, and alcohol as a risk factor for worsening anxiety are common human experiences. Although Dougie is not currently in therapy, he plans to engage in therapy to further seek relief from the anxiety spirals and panic attacks that hover over him. Here are some tips from Dougie for our listeners who may be experiencing anxiety. First, Dougie says, learn to recognize the anxiety. Gaining awareness takes practice and mindfulness is a great way to start. Meditation has helped him. Second, learn how to put the anxiety to the side and compartmentalize. His anxiety became less important as he learned to do this. If this is hard for you to do, then move to the next tip and find a way to distract yourself through exercise or other activities that you find fulfilling or seek help from a behavioral health provider. So his third tip is exercise. And his fourth tip is less screen time. And he says, especially in the morning or at night, Dougie mentioned that when he has more screen time in the morning, he says, quote, the impact is insane, end quote. And he feels more scattered on those days and more anxious. Many people struggle with anxiety, similar to what Dougie faces, and we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.